Welcome to Think Like an Owner, a show exploring how the most ambitious CEOs grow great companies. I'm your host, Alex Bridgman. Each week, I dive into the strategies and tactics that build transformative businesses with the operators doing it firsthand. You can learn more about the guests and the companies they are building by visiting us at tlaopodcast.com. There, you will also find our weekly newsletter that further analyzes how companies are finding success today. Lastly, if you enjoy Think Like an Owner, please share this podcast with a peer and leave us a review. My guest today is Chris Powers, founder and chairman of Fort Capital, an industrial real estate investor based in Fort Worth, Texas. Chris is also the host of the Fort Podcast, which I was a guest on just last week, and we'll link to that episode in the show notes. Chris has built an amazing real estate firm and recently promoted his business partner, Jason, to CEO so he could step into a chairman role. We talked primarily today about his role as a leader in Fort, but we also recorded an episode together a few years ago with a focus on his investing strategy. That's episode 70 from June 2021. This discussion centers around what he's learned running Fort, both as CEO and chairman, including tactics and strategies that have been effective, how organizations scale, looking up to peer businesses and modeling the path there, identifying what you're good at, and mentorship. Please enjoy this fantastic conversation with Chris Powers. When it comes to accounting, quality of earnings reports, and financial due diligence, it's vital to have a partner who understands your business and what you're trying to accomplish. Jerry Joe and his team at Hood & Strong in San Francisco have a specialty for search funds and lower middle market private equity, with multiple podcast guests today trusting them with their partnership. Email Jerry at jzhou at hoodstrong.com and visit their search fund landing page at hoodstrong.com to learn more. For advice and observations on accounting for small companies, here's Jerry himself to share his expertise on today's Q&A. How is the quality of earnings different from an audit? Well, there are a lot of similarities between an audit and a quality of earnings analysis, and namely in that both are a form of verification on the numbers, on the, the financial statements of the business. The audit conforms to a different framework of standards. It's very, in general speaking, it's not as flexible. And it's usually being done on a calendar year, a fiscal year basis. The quality earnings analysis is, is often, the objective is different in that it's um, focused on the business as it near the transaction. That's There is a sale or purchase of the business. And it can be flexible in evaluating the business through the most trading 12 months. So the cutoff is different. And as far as the adjustments that are usually being proposed or made to the financial statements, that includes the customary accounting adjustment just to conform to an accounting standards, but also includes other type of adjustments that what we call normalizing adjustments. These would include adding back non-recurring expenses, one-time expenses, discretionary spend, um, or what we call them as personal expenses that are run through smaller business. And there are also certain types of performer adjustments we make. If there's any change, for example, to the cost structure of this business is because now you the company has raised the salary and wages of all your employees, and now we need to take that into consideration and recast that type of adjustment and burdening the company historically. And that is not something that an audit itself would be strived to, to accomplish to, to give that view. And I would say, you know, the focus on the quality of earnings is namely on the revenue profile, the, the earning capability of basically the P&L, the income statement, as opposed to the audit that would be largely driven and focused on the balance sheet aspect of the company. So the objective is different between the two. And because of that, the scope is a little bit different. And that could also include you know, analysis around working capital that's done on a QOV, but not being done on an audit. Excellent. Thank you, Jerry. To learn more about Hood & Strong, please reach out to Jerry directly at jzhou at hoodstrong.com and visit their search fund landing page at hoodstrong.com for more information. I also want to thank our other sponsors, Ravix Group, and Oberly Risk Strategies for supporting the show. And now to the episode. I think for the first podcast episode, you came on for Think Like an Owner. We basically talked about just real estate at that point. And I don't think I really knew you enough to give a full wide ranging podcast episode and conversation. And I feel like the more I've gotten to know you, the 
the less interesting the real estate part of your life is and the more interesting the rest of it is. So I'm excited to have you on for a full ranging podcast episode. I think most folks are probably familiar with with your background, but what's just a quick 30 second elevator pitch for Fort Capital and what you've been focusing on career wise? Yeah, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I get to run Fort Capital. Fort Capital is based here in Fort Worth, Texas. And to date, we have really been a real estate private equity or real estate investment company that has focused on acquiring what we call Class B industrial assets throughout the southeastern United States, primarily Texas. We own and operate just under 8 million square feet. And we have done that through syndicating equity on a deal-by-deal basis. And when I say we're fully vertically integrated, that really means that we basically own and operate all the way down to property management, everything that we buy. And we really like to think that our edge is that we can find deals and operate deals better than anybody. Our, Our mission at Ford is to be the best real estate operator in the world. And so it's just kind of baked into the culture to be continuous improvement and operational excellence. Yeah, I love the vision of being the best real estate operator in the world. It seems like just from my time getting to know you that you're just a big thinker. You th- you have a bigger vision for what you want to do and accomplish. Is there anything driving that? Or is that just an idea that or mindset you feel like you've always had? That's a great question. I think every like personality test I've ever taken would say that some of it's just like naturally how I'm wired to think big picture. But I think especially and I know like some of this the the podcast you do are with smaller or medium-sized businesses. There, there's things that you do when you're small and you sometimes fight like, well, we would never do it like the big guys do it or the bigger companies do it. And then you kind of get a little bigger and you realize like you have these aha moments like, oh, this is why they do it. And I think if you have enough of those, then you start paying attention at a higher level to like, okay, well, what are the people or uh, companies that have done the thing I'm going to do? What are they doing right now? And what and look at their actions over decades. And then you try and synthesize that into like, okay, here's probably the next best step, even if it doesn't feel comfortable at the moment. I think it's always been natural for me to think, well, it's inevitable we're going to get here. So I might as well start thinking along these lines and almost working your way backwards going, okay, here's the outcome you want. How do you work yourself back to like, what do I need to do today to take the next best step to get there? Are there any particular companies or entrepreneurs you feel like you've studied the most or learned the most from? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, there's a few. I mean, my mentor growing up is a guy named Meyer Marcus from El Paso, Texas. And he had he has one, still to this date one of the best real estate companies I've come across. It's a family-owned business. They've owned retail properties going on 40, 50 years. And a lot of how he structured his business has impacted how we've structured ours. And then I can take it as far as like, this might sound like a common answer, but Blackstone. Blackstone's the biggest in the world for lots of reasons. And it's not because they just got lucky. There's probably luck involved along the way, but there's there's so many things that they do that are just excellent. And from how they raise capital to how they deploy capital to how they decide what they're going to go into to how they collect data to just why they do certain things and why they do it so well. And so I've studied them quite a bit thinking, you know, not that we're a small Blackstone, but a lot of the things that we do in our business, because if you look at your business, you're like, okay, here are some things we do, no matter the size, you could look at a huge company and be like, oh, they do those things too, just on a much larger scale. But we, we still match up in several verticals of our business. Now, Blackstone's infinitely larger, better, quicker, faster, whatever you want to call it. But that doesn't mean we can't sit back here today and go, okay, they're really good at this. Why are they good at this? And where's the gap between where we are and where they are? And sometimes those gaps are big. And sometimes they're they're not as big as you think, even though the company might be much bigger. And so that's probably another one. And the third I would lean on, and I know they're kind of, you have your, my local mentor, hometown hero that has a couple billion dollars of real estate. You have Blackstone. And then maybe somebody that couldn't be more opposite than Blackstone in a lot of regards is, and it's it's another obvious answer is Berkshire. There's so many things I've taken from the way Berkshire, really more around like incentives and how they think about longevity and things of that nature. I don't know how to buy companies. Uh, maybe one day I'll learn how to do that or buy stocks. But there's a lot of like 
just wisdom that translates out of them. And a lot of it is, I don't think anybody's learned how to incentivize the right outcomes more than Berkshire has. Are there any common threads of thinking or mindset amongst the leaders of these companies that you've studied from a personality and habits and tactics standpoint? Yeah, I think a lot of people would say, oh, they, they take a lot of risk. And th- I think there's some element of truth that, that people that are at the forefront of these companies are willing to take more risk than maybe your average person. They're outliers in that regard. But the thing that you have to counter that with is what seems risky to somebody that it, risk in general, like if you go talk to somebody that doesn't know about Bitcoin, they'll say like, it's the riskiest thing in the world. But if you go talk to someone that's devoted the last 10 years of their life to Bitcoin, they're like, this is the most no-brainer thing in the world. What's the difference? One person knows a lot, has a lot of information on it and is very focused on it and doesn't see it as risky. And somebody else does see it as risky. Is like, um, if you tried to buy an industrial building tomorrow, if I said you need to buy an industrial building tomorrow, you would think that's really risky. because you. And, and what you're really saying is like, I just don't know much about this. But Alex, you're super smart. You're super capable. A year from now, it wouldn't seem as risky, but the only difference is you spent time learning. So on one end, they have an appetite for risk, but I think it's calculated risk. All the people I just mentioned are so deeply ingrained in like what they're doing that what seems like risk to a lot of people probably feels like second nature to them. The second is in order to get to that size and magnitude, and we could really look at Berkshire for this, but you could also look at what Schwartzman's done at Blackstone incredible opportunity to delegate power to those around them. Warren might be as good as anybody in the world at it. I don't know if there's anybody better. But in order to build a large organization, they built the ability to, one, attract talent, but two, delegate authority, power, and decision-making to that talent. And then the truth is, you'll never retain great talent if you're not willing to do that, because I think great talent requires that. So you look at that, And I think all of them have had a really, all the people in my life that I admire have a long-term mindset. And so even at Blackstone, like maybe they're the shortest term mindset on any one deal. Like my mentor holds, has held properties for 40, 50 years. Warren's kind of notorious for holding things for a very long time. I don't think Blackstone necessarily holds any one asset for a very long time, but the vision of the company in general and just like how they think about the company is in decades and multi-decades. So they might own a building for three to five years, but that's, and that could be looked at as short term. But if you said, what's your philosophy on just like the business, they're just thinking very far out, very big picture. So those are maybe a few things that come to mind. What feels risky to you and Jason today that doesn't feel risky to Blackstone or Buffett? I don't know. That's a, that's a really good question. I think uh, if you look at them, they all have multi-business units. So we just promoted a gentleman at our company to president of our management business. And I wouldn't necessarily, we think it's risky, but I think it's the next thing we need to learn. So there's maybe more caution around it is we see Fort starting to build out multiple business units. If you look at the center of Fort, it owns a lot of real estate. But if you go down the P&L of what makes that real estate operate, you know, when you own 8 million square feet of roofing, it, it's not crazy to think, or of, of buildings, it's not crazy to think you should own a roofing company or a stake in a roofing company. Or maybe you should own your own insurance captive at this point. Or maybe you should own your own trash service. Because if you're already spending millions of dollars a year on any one of these line items, it's almost a business in and of itself. And so we're getting to the point where you can see that as we buy more real estate, there are business units that we should eventually create that kind of orbit in that ecosystem. And so that's like maybe something like where our head's been at a lot is like, where is the next, what line item on our PL is like the next thing that we should go start? And like, how will we run that? And how will it feel seamless to where it still operates under one flywheel, even though it's a unit with maybe its own leader or, or business leader? So that's maybe one thing that comes to mind. That's a great question. I, I don't, I, there's nothing that jumps out. That's maybe the one place that we're like, we're learning the most right now. Do you think there's any particular dangers with studying companies or people who are not just like a couple steps ahead of you, but maybe 10 or 20 steps ahead of you in terms of their 
the the magnitude of the enterprise they're running? Yes, and uh, it's a great question because I think I spent a lot of the earlier part of my career, maybe not like with Blackstone or Berkshire, but just even maybe like a, a peer that was maybe a company closer in size, but maybe a little bit bigger. And would go have like go to YPO uh, conference or go have dinner with somebody and like hear how they did it and already associate. Okay, these people are successful. This is how they do it. This is immediately like it was like okay, we're going to do it this way. And I wouldn't say all the time that ended up being a bad decision, but what you really come to learn in some of these special companies, and and I think Fort Capital special. I don't know if anybody else does, but I think about it that way is. While we all might do something similar, the greatest companies kind of do it their own way. That's what culture is. You know, if you were to get like there, there, I think there's a, a I think it's Toyota. Toyota is known for some of the best manufacturing like in the world. But if you were to get all those people from Toyota and like move them to America and say start all over again, they'd probably never be able to replicate what they have at Toyota. Like the best companies in the world have this like almost intangible secret sauce. One is just like millions of reps of doing something over and over. And when you think of a company, it's uh, think of a company like Blackstone that's, I don't know, 30, 40 years old. It's compromised of like probably trillions of decisions that have been made, not just with people working at Blackstone, but the vendors that they worked with and how they were incentivized and the vendors, vendors. And there's, it's this collective of like all these micro decisions. And so I think the answer to that is it's great to observe what other companies have done. And there's certainly certain parts of a business that you don't have to recreate the flywheel. It's very obvious, like, hey, we should do something like this, like accounting. You don't have to go get, you don't need to go get magical with accounting. But when it comes to sales or marketing or things of that nature, there's just things that you say, yeah, this is how they do it. That makes a lot of sense, but we still need to do it our way. And if you look at the companies I admire the most, they all have an element to them that's their way. How do you identify what your way is and have the conviction that your way works and is effective? I think that goes back to one, like what's your culture? Like what do you value and what do you incentivize? So culture is like what you're willing to accept. And so that's that's part of it. Just it's just, just things we believe as a company that other real estate investment companies don't believe. And so because we believe those things, like one example is we believe to approach the industry from an operator standpoint, knowing that if we can operate assets, how we and, and operating isn't even how you operate assets, it's how you operate your company, how we raise money, how we deal with investors, how we onboard new investors, how we recruit people, how they go through our recruiting process. Like all these little things are what make up a company. But I think it starts with like, what are you after? And so for us, we've approached the industry saying, we just want to be the best operator that there ever was in real estate. But there's people that approach the business and like, we just want to do lots of deals. Maybe we want to be the best. I don't know, financier or the best bottom feeder and find the craziest, most hairy deals ever. We don't really care how we operate. We're just looking to buy things so cheap that like it doesn't matter how we operate. And trust me, that's like a there's people that run their business and that's not wrong. So I think it's it really starts with like what you value and what you value tends to be the type of people you attract and the way that they think. And so then the second thing I would say is like time horizon, a private equity company that was just bought that has a three to five year window to turn the company around or increase EBITDA quickly and then flip that thing to the next guy is run so much differently than a family business that has no intention of ever selling. And so they just do things differently. I think time horizon actually is one of the biggest components of how people, why people do the things they do is the time window that they're given. Yeah, I remember listening to your podcast with Brent Bishore and hearing about your decision to focus on industrial real estate in Texas primarily. Of course, you're well beyond Texas now. And then simultaneously focus on industrial, but then ignore these other deals around the edges that you could have been doing just because you wanted to get deals done. That always has felt like a counterintuitive idea for me to focus on one particular thing that you're really good at and ignore everything else that feels like a limiting action, something that would make your world smaller, not bigger. But it 
that it seems to be the opposite is the, is the truth that you can through focus expand and grow in a more effective way what did that look like for you from focusing to industrial real estate how in, in what ways did that lead to better growth for you I'll kind of give you two different answers. So we'll start where you started, where it's sometimes hard to envision why focus and business could be really powerful and not taking advantage of all these other little ideas. And I'll start by this. For some reason, when it, when, it, when we talk about it in a business context, it's a little more blurry to people. But when I've explained it like this, it kind of resonates a little bit more. Let's take Tiger Woods, for example. Do you think Tiger played tennis and baseball and football and all these other sports and, oh, just so happened to be great at golf? Or Kobe Bryant? Or name the best athlete. I was talking to Apollo Ono the other day. I met him from Twitter. Best, I guess, speed skater in the world. You listen to how he grew up. He wasn't playing 10 sports or going, hey, just because I'm really good at speed skating, maybe I'll be good at volleyball. I mean, I'm just I'm something else. But when you look at through a sports lens, it's very obvious like, oh, you should just play one sport and get really, really good at it. Like nobody that you know that's a sporting person is playing multiple sports and somehow ends up being the best in the world. It's it's like never happened. I mean, Michael Jordan went and played baseball and it was the laughing stock of the baseball field greatest basketball player ever. And so I think if you take that mentality and go, well, why would that be different in business? Why in business should you be allowed to be really good at one thing and then like spin a bunch of plates and have all these other activities? Why it happens more often, I think, is because one, the game is much longer. Two, founder types or or people that are willing to start the first company usually have that muscle in their brain that they like new ideas. They, this, the shiny object is actually what's more addicting than building the great business. The best part of like starting a business sometimes is like the idea in that early phase of like getting really excited about it. And then you talk to most people that have been in it for four or five years, they're like, this ain't exciting anymore. But that's because business at the end of the day starts to look like chicken at the end. It's very bland. It's like you're paying bills, you're you're receiving bills, you have sales and marketing. And it's like the same thing in every business is what every business eventually becomes. But you play the game a lot longer. It's not physically taxing. So it's not like you need to be in the gym every day, you know, becoming the best football player. You can be the best business guy on earth and not work out at all, not really eat healthy at all. And just spend your day on the internet just seeing idea after idea after idea come through. And when you've made money and you're successful in something, it's like everybody in the business world is coming to you going, and I don't know why this is in the business world. And I've experienced this. As we got more successful, everybody's like, you should start buying multifamily or you should start a new business, like not even in real estate. But I don't think Tiger Woods, as he was getting better at golf, had people coming up to him going like, dude, you should play baseball now. Like, I just don't think that was the thing. But in business, it's like the more successful you get, the more like ideas come your way that just aren't the thing. And I was listening to a podcast the other day and it was like the the amount of entrepreneurs that have built like a $10 million business or a $100 million business and wanted to get to 200 million, they thought that the way to get to 200 was to go start another $100 million business instead of why don't I just double the business that I'm already good at and go from 100 to 200. And the real answer, it gets back to like just humans. It's not as exciting. The idea of that new thing is like way more exciting than, because at the end of the day, I don't think most people are after it for money, or at least they aren't over the long term. Maybe earlier in their career, they are until they get a base. But like, I don't know, Warren Buffett's not in it to make the next, you know, at this point, he's playing a whole different game and it's not about getting to 200 billion so that he can go spend it. He's just like, how can I become the best that there ever was? And that's what he's really chasing. And so as I think about it through that dichotomy is like, you would never go tell Tiger Woods, start playing football because he got really good at golf. But for some reason in business, when somebody gets really good at something, everybody and their mother's like, go do this next thing that's not what made you successful. Yeah, the analogy makes it a lot more clear. Did you listen to the Jeremy Giffen episode on Invest Like the Best? So good. It was really good. I listened to it twice and have several pages of notes. But one concept I was reminded of as you were as you were sharing was 
he said something about how folks want to be successful and rich, but within certain with certain conditions, like that the work is engaging or it's flashy or gives them status and something else. No one wants to just get rich in a really boring way. And so you felt like the that is like the enduring advantage is like, can you, are you okay doing things that aren't as flashy, like starting a new business or starting some another $100 million company? Maybe the best way is just to do the the thing you've already been doing and are getting good at and just focus there. And that's ultimately the better means of success, even if it's not going to fulfill the the same checkboxes around status or excitement or thrill or what have you. And I just think the world, like, I don't know, you go back to the boomer generation or the greatest generation and you saw a lot more of these folks that just stayed in the same business for 50 or 60, 70 years. It's just kind of what they did. I think part of it is our generation. There's, we're being, there's so many things hitting us every day, sensory overload that like maybe back then there just was nothing else to think about. It's like, I wake up, I don't have a cell phone to look at all day. I look at the newspaper for 20 minutes. I'm just going to go work on my company. And now it's, you know, you're reading articles and getting on Twitter, hearing of all these crazy stories. But you take someone like Jeff Bezos that went from one guy, everybody's seen that infamous picture of him starting Amazon to transcending as CEO to like a 500,000 person company. And all I can say about somebody like that is absolute unicorn of a person to be able to level up and stay in the game the entire way through. I we We might end up talking about this, but most people can't and shouldn't ever be the same CEO from zero to 500,000 people. It's just not how most people are built. Yeah, we should definitely talk about that. It, it is amazing that someone like him from zero dollars in revenue to tens of billions can be just as effective in both places. That's a seems incredibly, incredibly rare. Have you met folks like that? And then what what stands out to you about folks who can do that really well. Well, I think if you take Jeff, and I think about this a lot, because I also think like, is this something that can be learned over time if you've been in the game long enough? And I don't think Jeff started till 38. So he had a lot of years of his career under his belt. He probably got over being immature in his 20s and 30s. And so he entered the game at a period where he was maybe a little more mature in life. But I, But if you go back and you just read all of his letters, going back from like the very first one, it's so fun to do because you can see like he always knew the vision of like where he was headed. He wasn't really guessing what the next step was. And so I think what I'm trying to say there is there was an element to him that none of the levels he kept reaching were a surprise to him. They were, they were expected to happen. He had thought that far out and he says it in his letters every year. And that's, I think, one of the ways that you stay in the game that long is you have to have that time horizon so that as you're reaching these new levels of the company, you're not really surprised by them or taken back by it. You are, in fact, expected to be there. Now, whether you can operate a system and manage people and, and do the thing that needs to happen in that moment, that's a different skill set. But I, I think there's some people, I think actually there's a lot of people that are scared of getting too big or they're scared of reaching those next levels like on, it might sound good to talk about, but they get there and th- there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of, there's a lot more stakeholders. There's just a lot going on at these next levels that you see some people that I almost say are like scared to succeed. They're going to, it's like Brent says, they're just going to stay small forever. They don't know why, but it's like, they're just scared to take that to succeed, which often is also correlated to scared to delegate power and decision-making to people around them. They would rather control and be the best at something rather than let everybody around them be the best at something. Do you think that's where most of that fear comes from? Is the fear to delegate and entrust someone else to do the same process with the same level of care and effort and vision perhaps that you have a hundred percent i mean there's just some like again we go back to brent small businesses don't stay small on purpose most small businesses are small because the founder ceo doesn't realize they're the issue for they're the one keeping the business back from growing now sometimes it's because you have a terrible business or a bad product or you just bad market there there's headwinds but there's a lot of businesses out there and you see it all the time business has been around 20 or 30 years 
somebody with a new set of eyes buys the business or the right CEO enters. And all of a sudden, what was once this like slowly growing fledgling business is a rocket ship. What was the difference? Leadership changed out. And what usually happened there? Power was delegated. Ideas were taken. You go into any company that's been small for a long time, and you hear this on podcasts, Twitter. I mean, you read about it all the time. And these, these future buyers are going in and doing due diligence, and they're asking the employees like, hey, what would you do to make this business better? What's holding you back? And it's like 10 of the most obvious things on the planet of what should be doing. It's like, well, why aren't you doing it? It's like, founder doesn't want... like it's like, it's a founder issue or it's a leadership issue. They, they don't want to hear it. They don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to take the risk. And so, yeah, there's one thing you can see in all amazing companies is an incredible leadership team. You mentioned Warren Buffett being one of the best delegators that you've, you've seen before. Is there anything tactically from his skill of delegating that you think is applicable or has been applicable for you? I think just one, just seeing that, like, again, going far out and going, is this possible? Can you delegate power like this and be successful? The answer is yes. So in some ways, like Warren gave, at least for me, permission that this was a possible game to play. It's been proven. He's done it. And so for so then I have to look in myself in the eyes and go, I'm not saying I need to build Berkshire Hathaway or I'll be anywhere close to him, but going... Do I have what it takes to even do a little bit of what he's done? Like that's more just looking at yourself in the mirror and kind of sizing yourself up going, okay, it is possible. He's done it as masterfully as anybody. So I can't now blame that like, oh, well, this is just doesn't work. No, it works. And so on a lot of ends, Warren, not just on how he delegates and, and other leaders, it's not just Warren. They've proven that it's possible. So then as an entrepreneur type, you're kind of sizing yourself up like, do I have what it takes to do this? And I don't know the answer. Some people think they do and they don't, but at least giving the permission, I think is huge. And then I think the other part is once you've worked with somebody really great, like I don't think, I think some people, maybe they have had the opportunity to work with great people, maybe they never have, but once you've actually seen it happen, even in a small company where you're like, I'm giving up this part of the business to this person. Like since I left being CEO of the company, our business is like 5 x And I can t- sit here today and tell you, had I stayed CEO of the company, we would not have 5 x There's just no way. I've, there's so many things I've seen that I was doing that was going to handicap things. But then it's not like you have to go build Berkshire overnight, but you go, okay, maybe if he's proven you can do it at that scale, I'm going to prove that I can at least do it with one person. I'm going to give this part of my business to this person. I'm not going to expect them to be amazing at it in 30 days. I'm going to give them a year. But this is my goal this year is to delegate a meaningful part of the business to somebody. And then you do it and it works. And now you're like, okay, game on. Because the truth is that becomes the game if you want to build a great big company. is It's a constant delegation of authority and power to great people. I remember even a, a small example. We say we share the same podcast producer. And I remember getting a producer for the first time and then going and moving and having Johnny take over the show. And I remember how freeing and exciting it was that somebody else loved the part that I really wasn't a fan of and was vastly better at it than I was. And that was a, a very freeing thing. There's a number of CEOs I know who have to get that sense for like what's possible, they'll go to companies and peers or friends that run larger companies. And say, for example, they don't have a head of sales. They might go meet the head of sales or the CRO of a much larger business to get a sense for what's possible. What kind of talent could you bring into your company over time? And it it turns on a lot of light bulbs for for CEOs. It's huge. And, and I would end it by just saying it's self-reinforcing. So if you're a controlling person, and you try and delegate, and then your whole purpose for delegating is just waiting for them to screw up so you can kind of prove that you should have been doing it anyway, you become more controlling over time. The opposite is true. As soon as you give something away with the expectation, like, look, this person's probably not going to be perfect at it. But then you see them build that muscle. And then you go, like you just said, Johnny's way better at this than even I am. You'll probably never take audio editing back in-house again. 
if Johnny were to, to, to quit tomorrow, you just go find the next person, but you'd never go, well, I guess I'm going to start doing it again. Like maybe temporarily for a, a month. So the, the thing kept going, but not for the long term. So they're self-reinforcing in both directions. Once you learn to delegate, all you want to do is delegate. But if all you want to do is control, you actually control more and more as time goes by, not less and less. One thing I want to make sure we talk about too is your transition from CEO to chairman and hiring Jason as CEO. I would love to hear how, to your point just now, that self-reinforcing mechanism from delegation in a positive way. Since having Jason become CEO, how have you seen that that flywheel spin for you? Oh, I mean, again, I started by saying I'm the luckiest guy in the world. And, and part of it's because I get to work with great people like Jason. I'll go back to maybe something I said earlier. What makes somebody great at getting things started and, and breathing life into something and really getting the ball going is a different type of energy than the energy needed to take something where the excitement's kind of worn off. Now it's time to take this thing that's moving in the right direction and just make it better. And this is where business in some ways starts to feel like chicken. It's like, we got to do annual budgeting every year and we've got to have the correct hiring processes and we've got to have the right incentives at all times. And we have to just kind of just do everything a little bit better every day. A great business ends up being boring in, a, in the best way possible. Not every day should feel like the Super Bowl with these new ideas coming in and like, it's crazy. That's like chaos. And so I think a couple of things like one, I never worked for anybody. I'd never worked for anybody. And I've, so I've never really gotten to, to see how other people did it Two, I think our culture praises the CEO. Like it's the end all be all for everybody. And what I would tell you is they're paid a lot, but their job's not easy. And there's a lot we could unpack of why CEOs deserve a lot of respect. But then we also said the CEO of a 10-person business is not the CEO of a 100,000-person company, like radically different skill sets. And so what I started to notice, and then there's the humility and the ego of what I think some people do is they're like, I started this business and come hell or high water, I'm going to be the CEO of this thing forever. And what, what's really happening there, whether they're, and I don't even think they even think about it like necessarily like that. It's what's happening is the business should not be there to serve the CEO and their ego and their personal interest. The business is there to serve customers. And so the best people need to be working at the company to serve the customers. But you see all the time, these businesses that are just wrapped around the CEO's finger, they're doing all these kind of crazy things that only like would happen because the CEO is the CEO. And I kind of ran the business that way for a long time. It was like kind of a business, kind of my personal playground, kind of we did things that if you were to like, if I was going to go try and sell the business, the investment banker would be like, why do y'all do this? It's like, oh, well, Chris likes doing that. But that's so common in these businesses. Jason, on the other hand, he had been at a great company. He had seen how great companies are built. He had seen how the quote unquote chicken works. And he stepped in and said, we're going to build a company that no matter who's CEO, it works. Like we're not building a company that serves the CEO. We're building a company that serves the employees, that serves our customers, that serves our team. And so what I would tell you today is it's given me back the opportunity to work on things I want to work on. I've paid attention very much attention to how he's run the business the last three years. I feel like I've gotten a world-class education. And I'm not saying I ever want to be the CEO of another company again, but man, has he opened my eyes to what it takes to do it. And it really makes me think like, is that something I would ever want to go do? And the answer is right now, no, I would not ever want to be the CEO of another company again. What have you done to reduce or sideline your ego from some of these businesses decisions? Oh, so I think the first thing is, and man, I'm challenged by it every day. I think it's a, you're constantly learning, but there's a big difference in owning a business and running a business. And, you know, I, I've talked to plenty of people that own hold co's or buy companies and, and manage CEOs and, and I don't manage a CEO. My CEO is my partner. So I'm lucky in that regard. But we do hold each other accountable. And there's a lot of things I've had to learn over the last three years. And one is, 
And there's no like perfect line. But if the, if the CEO is going to run the business, they have to run the business. And they have to, again, they have to be given the delegation of authority and power to make the decisions they need to make. What you sometimes see is like people that transition out of CEO, but they still want to inflict their opinion on every decision and be really involved. Well, in that case, it's like you should have just kept running the business. And so there's this like, there's this line in the sand and nobody quite knows where it is. I've talked to Brent B. Shore about this a lot. That's somebody that your listeners probably know. Is wins too much, too much? Because once you've crossed the line and the CEO no longer feels empowered that they truly have the power, it's it's kind of like you kind of have it until you make do a decision that I don't agree with. Do I agree with every decision Jason makes? No. Would he agree with everything I make? No. That, I think that's healthy. The the key is is like when how do you how do you disagree together? It's easy to agree with people. How do you disagree, especially as an owner when you're maybe the largest owner and you have the most equity in the company? And so I think there's this constant balance that I'm thinking of is like, where am I pushing it too far? Now, how do you get over that? You communicate regularly. You have a a very transparent way of communicating. You trust each other. I mean, I can't imagine owning a business where you don't trust the CEO. That would be terrible. So you have this embedded trust. There's certain things that we've agreed. These are the things that are the big things in the business. And if as long as we're sticking to those, like we don't have much to talk about. If we want to deviate from those, we have something to talk about. Not from like a, I need to have some magic wand to like make the decision. It's just, here's the playbook. And if we're going to run a different playbook, we should probably both make sure we're both on board with it because that's probably the right thing to do. And so... But the ego is also this, and this is like the main thing I guess I'll get to. We're only given so many gifts as humans. And there's things that you just, we just made the example with Johnny. There's things that I can't stand doing that there are other people on this planet that love doing them. There are people on this planet that could not even imagine starting a podcast. And there are people on this planet that love podcasts. And so part of the ego is really checking yourself at the door going, where are my gifts? Where are they not? And now the game is, how do I surround myself with people that are so much better, that are specialists in these certain verticals? That is the game that you're really playing. The game is not, how can I be better at everybody at everything? That's a selfish personal game. That's not a how to build a great business game. You'll never meet a business where the CEO or the founder the whole way through said, I'm going to be the best at accounting, finance, marketing, sales, construction, blah, 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 blah. What they become the best at is knowing who the people are that need to be around them. That's the name of the game. And that's lowering your ego. From that transition from CEO to chairman, where have you drawn that line in terms of decisions that Jason makes versus ones that you make? There's still, I imagine, decisions you'll make at Fort. They may be different in some ways, but how do you how do you divide responsibilities effectively? Again, I don't have this like perfect drawn out answer. I think if you trust your partner, you trust your CEO, and and like the whole relationship is built on trust. There's less. What decisions are each person going to make? It almost happens like through osmosis. We meet every Monday morning. He knows the things I care about. I know the things he care about. I trust him that there's really not many decisions that like I think he would make that I would say he has to get my permission for. That That's not the right way to think about it. But there's just things we come to each other with that's like, hey, what do you think about this? Can you give me a, a different opinion on this? Now, I would say this, like we've said, we don't develop, we only acquire. So if Jason were to come to me tomorrow and say, hey, I want to start developing properties. It's not like it'd be like, well, we said we weren't going to do that. I was like, okay, let's think about it. Let's talk about it. Why? But I'm already starting the conversation with like, Jason obviously has good intentions. He thinks it's strategic. He's the one in the day-to-day of this business. So he's talking to more people daily than I am. I just want to make sure as the owner of the company that it's that we've thought through it and that we're both confident in it. He wants my blessing. I want his blessing on certain things. I think where the only place we differ in in decisions, not differ in opinion, is 
Anything that happens to do with the day-to-day, I'm totally out of. I probably spend more time on capital raising. And then when it comes to deals, he ultimately makes the decision if we're going to do it or not. But we chat about every deal. I mean, it's very, very rare that I, I can't even remember the last time that he was like, we should do this deal. And I was like, no, we shouldn't. Or vice versa. You kind of, when you've been together 10 years, you kind of remain on the same page. So I don't, I don't have a great answer because here's the one thing I would say. In my case, I founded the company. My fingerprints and my DNA are all over that company. I know the people really well. I love them really well. It's, it's like a piece of my life. I don't know if it would be different and I can't speak from this experience yet. Now I've sat on board, so maybe I have a little bit of an inclination, but I've, I've often told people, I wonder how I would be a different chairman if I went and bought a company where I wasn't as emotionally invested in it as I have been for Ford. And in a very positive way, I'm trying to become less emotional about Ford over time. I still want to love the people the same way and care about them the same way. But for a long time, candidly, just being honest, it was a big part of my identity. You know, if I went and bought some widget manufacturing business tomorrow, it wouldn't be my identity. I would look at it as purely like, how do we do great business here, which is treating people well, which is serving customers, which is doing all the things. But I couldn't have memories of like, oh, I remember when I was 23 and you know, we did our first deal and like all this nostalgia that comes with it. And so maybe in those cases, there would be more clearly defined lanes of what decisions I make and what decisions the CEO make. But Jason's my partner. We've been partnered for nine or 10 years. Yes, he's the CEO. Yes, I'm technically the chairman. But we've been in it for so long together and so much of the company has been built together that there's just very few things that uh, he asks permit, like, I, I can't really think of much. We're very in tune. What have you learned about healthy disagreement? It is the most powerful thing in the world. I have a painting up in my, you've seen it in my conference room, and it is a line of people at a stand called Convenient Lies. And that line is full of people. And then there's another booth next to it that is inconvenient truths. And there's nobody standing at that. And I think it's a lot, it says a lot about where the world is today. People don't want to be told the truth, even though the truth is often the thing that sets them free, helps them grow, gets them better. There's nothing positive about a situation that's not going great. And everybody pretends like it's going great. There is like nothing positive about that. Like people have been in bad relationships with a bad girlfriend or boyfriend. The worst thing you could do is pretend that like you have this great relationship when inside it's rotting your soul. And that's the same thing that happens in business. And so I think the thing that the only thing that makes it hard is if you don't trust the, where it's coming from or trust the person or feel safe and you think that it's personal it's, it's toast. Jason knows, and trust me, this happened the other day. We disagreed on something. I wrote him a, a nice email. I stated my case, but he didn't read it and go, this is a personal attack. He read it and said, here's a different opinion from someone that, that cares about me, cares about the company, and this is just an opinion. And so as soon as it's not personal, it's great. And it's, I think it's where the biggest breakthroughs in the company happen are when you can have like thoughtful disagreement in a relationship. You might call it heated fellowship. I like that phrase. I like to find a way to use that. How do you get folks to understand that your feedback or disagreement isn't personal? I think it's easy to take disagreements personally. And it takes a little, some special nuance, I think, to communicate that no, I'm, I'm disagreeing with you because I care about you and I want you to have the best information for this decision you're making. I think it's what you just said. When your parents punished you as a kid, did you think it's because they hated you? It's because you thought they wanted you to get better, but under, underneath all that, you knew they loved you. And I'm not saying in a, in a workplace, it's the same uh, love that you would have maybe in a family, but as a leader the first thing is like, is this person for me? And once you can get that out of the way, you can say a lot of things as soon as somebody, and I think this can show up in lots of ways. It can be direct words. It can be actions. It could be hearing that somebody's talking poorly behind your back. 
things of that nature. But if somebody's for you, which are the earliest relationship we can really see that manifest is our parents, that is the underlying current of the relationship, then it makes everything else you're about to say easier. The other part is like consistency. If people are expecting this stuff to come up, and one, it's like baked into the culture. I think the most radical I've seen is Ray Dalio's Bridgewater, where they like rate each other after every meeting through some crazy system. And a lot of people can't handle it. But there is a reason why the people that make it through the first two years end up staying there for 30 or 40. They thrive on that constant feedback. And so I think it's a cultural thing, but I think the person has to be for you. And then it has to be in a manner that is not, um, it's like you never spank your child when you're angry, spank them you know, when you've talked to them and, hey, I'm going to give you a spanking. But as soon as you spank them out of anger, it's like it's a whole different thing than a spanking that's given with intentionality. It's the same thing with employees. If you think you're going to correct somebody by putting them on blast in front of a whole room full of their peers and that they're going to well receive that message, that's a lot different than pulling someone aside in a one-on-one, having a thoughtful conversation with a low tone of voice where they know you're for them. You're just trying to help them get better. And that's, and that's a trusted conversation as opposed to, you know, like I said, just embarrassing someone in front of a lot of people. So tone, context, situation matters. But I think at the, very, at the end of it all, the, the short answer that I made long is when somebody's for you, you give them permission to tell you things that you wouldn't allow somebody that's not for you to tell you. One kind of similarly related topic to this is mentorship, which I know you've given a lot of thought to in terms of youth mentoring younger and ambitious, hungry people through your organization or outside of it, what are some ways you've found effective at being a mentor to somebody else? I think mentors are the mentors that are alive and mentors that are dead. We all have mentors. And I think the thing that I think is the cheat code to life is having the guts, not even the guts, the confidence to go to somebody older than you that has walked the walk, that has done the thing that you want to do and ask them how they did it. Most successful people that have been successful in something, it doesn't even have to be building a business and making money. It could be a successful guy that's proven to be a great husband or a, a dad that we all want to be like when we have kids or you know, somebody that's given back a lot to the community. How did they do it? What drove them? Most people that have been successful, something that I have found in my life, one of the things that makes them successful is it's, it's like the, the nature of their heart. And you never meet like a like maybe every now and again, you meet this curmudgeon Scrooge that somehow made a lot of money, but nobody really loves the guy. It was self-serving or the girl, but it's usually a guy that's an ass. Women are much nicer. And you go to him and you're like, hey, how'd you do this? And what I found with most of these people is they are overjoyed to share with younger people how it happened. And so the first step to the answer to your question is, one, mentors are amazing. And two, seek people out that have done the thing that you want to do. And in like a real estate career, that first mentor could just be somebody that's bought five properties. They're the best next mentor because they're going to be able to share things that are applicable to how you get from like zero to five. Then you might find a mentor that's like, okay, who built a company doing this? So now I've got five properties, but now I'm trying to turn this into a company, the next mentor. And then you get to building a company and then maybe it's like, okay, how do I build a really big company? Okay, now I have a mentor that's done this. But one thing I can say about my life, and I don't know if it was a gift, uh, it's just how I've been born. It's always been the most logical thing to me is to immediately find the person that's done what I want to go do and either read a book about them, try and talk to them, learn everything I can about what they've done. So that's kind of step one. It's the cheat code to life. They've made all the mistakes. They've hit all the landmines. There's so many errors I've dodged along the way because of a great mentor. The second for like young people listening to this, I think there's mentorships that are formal and informal. I was probably good at having more informal ones where like I talked about my first mentor, I think I called him my mentor, but he and I were good friends and I just was always around him. I was always asking him questions. And we had this wonderful relationship where it was just kind of understood that he was teaching me along the way. 
But I also had mentors that I literally went to them and was like, hey, for the next year, I'm trying to learn this one thing. Could I talk to you once a month? And every time I show up, I'm going to be prepared. You're not going to waste your time on me. And after a year, if, if it's run its course, like it's over and it was more formal. What I wouldn't recommend young people doing is the whole like, can I pick your brain and can I just have this kind of flimsy relationship that I kind of half-ass care about? The ones that have had the most impact on me and the ones where I've probably had the impact on the younger people, it's very intentional. These people always show up ready to kind of learn and they're, they're on a mission to get something accomplished. What about from the other direction too? So if you're a a CEO and maybe there's an opportunity to be a mentor to somebody younger that you know, what are some things you've done that have been most helpful to that younger person? Is that somebody within the organization or just like anybody in general? Anybody in general. I I think I started with not, the relationship doesn't end up feeling so formal, but it is formal in the sense of, okay, we've agreed that we're going to meet once a month. And we're going to meet for 60 minutes or 90 minutes or whatever it is. And you've agreed that you're going to send me an agenda a week ahead of time about what we're going to discuss. As the mentor, it's not my job to come up with material to teach you. As soon as like I now have a job, it's usually when things aren't going well. Now, if you've sent me something and said, here's what I really want to discuss, as a good mentor, I should probably come prepared. So I'm not saying there's no work that goes into it. But the mentee is really driving the relationship the mentor has plenty of things in their life they could be doing. This is a, a service that they're doing to somebody and, and helping them out. And so one is a little more formality. Two is, I think, just being super transparent. Like if you're going to mentor someone, don't keep all the secrets, like don't mentor someone and not tell them what you know. <laughs> That's wasting everybody's time. There's some people that live in this world that think if they give up the secret, they're screwed. There are no secrets. And most people aren't going to go do what you know anyway. I've been radically transparent. It's given way more back to me than it's taken from me. But I think you do sometimes see mentors that like want to pretend like they're helping, but they're not really helping. They're just kind of filling space and, and um, they're not giving the nitty gritty. The things that I have benefited from the most are practical real life situations where a mentor can be like, this is going to eventually happen to you. And this is exactly what we did about it. And it might not have happened yet, but here's how you handle it when it happens. Or this is how we've let people go gracefully. Or this is what happens when we get sideways with a bank, you know, two weeks before closing or just all these like little things that are very practical. And I think try to give the most transparent answer as possible. What else about mentoring have you given a lot of thought to recently? Well, I do the podcast, which I think is like this ongoing mentorship. It might not be a one-on-one mentorship, but I, I see the feedback I get from people, especially young people. All I can say is I started this by saying I'm one of the luckiest guys on the planet. And I'm lucky because I've had these both formal and informal it might not like, yes, I think you'd call them mentors. It's not like I necessarily even called all these people mentors. Looking back, they were mentors. They've helped me become better father. They've helped me become better husband. They've helped me become a better leader. You know, you go back to the people, the five closest people in your life impact you the most. Like there's so much truth to that. And so sometimes those five people, like you don't even think of them as your mentors. It's not till later in life that you realize that Look at everything I benefited from having been close to that person. So I think the word mentor, you can think of it as this very formal thing. But I also look back in my life and go like, that person was actually a mentor. I didn't even know it at the time. They just cared a lot about me and and helped me get along. And so I think it's more the reflection of like looking around your life going like, are the people around me helping me move forward in life? Whatever that is. And if that's not the case, and I'm not saying everybody has to be this mentor, but if you often talk to the most successful people in any one aspect of their life, that's usually characterized by people around them that have walked the walk. And so like, you don't just, I, now I'm getting out of business. I'm, I'm a father of three young kids. You don't just accidentally become a good father. It's super hard. 
you're the best fathers often probably hang around with other great fathers or had a great father or their great their grandfather was great. There was somebody in their life that modeled what being a good father looked like. And so I think that's how you got to think about mentorship. Whatever area of your life you're trying to improve on, if there's not people in your life that have already done that thing, I'm not saying you can't do it, but it's it's just a lot harder. And there, why why make it harder than it already is on yourself? And the other thing I would say, and I don't have any experience with this, and so I'm not saying it's a good or bad thing, but if you're having to pay someone to be your mentor, I'm not saying it doesn't usually end well or it's a bad thing. I would just question it a lot more. I've never had somebody in my life that I look back on over the time I've been here and go, that was the best one I ever had. And I paid them with a caveat. I had an executive coach for 18 months. I wouldn't really, maybe they were a mentor and I paid them and it was some of the best value I've ever had, but that was their job. They were an executive coach. Every other, I would say leader in my life, informal, formal, whether I knew it or not, was just somebody that cared a lot about me, was was going back to what we said, they were for me. It seems like executive coaching has become more common, at least among the CEOs I, I know or have met. And I really enjoyed your episode with Julie Gardner. That was fantastic in terms of her expertise being an executive coach. Talk about your experience with executive coaching. What made it valuable? What did what was helpful coming out of that? Yeah, humans are kind of weird. Sometimes they know the answer. They just have to have it be told to them by somebody else to actually let it resonate. And so you see this often, like you'll see executive retreats where they bring a, a, a moderator or they bring a facilitator. You see all the time, you've read the book by Peter Lynchiani, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, where like everybody in the room knows what the problem is. They just don't know how to solve it because one, they probably don't know how to have tough conversations. They kind of need that third party unbiased opinion to come in and say what everybody's already thinking. That's just like how we are as people. And so part of that is what a coach does is they help bring to fruition the things that you're probably deep down inside feeling, but don't maybe know how to articulate or you don't really know if it's right. And so they kind of give you permission to understand yourself a little bit better. The other one of the reasons they're able to do that is because they have an unbiased opinion. Unless the executive coach has equity in your business or some huge financial upside if the business goes well, you're just another client. Like they might love you, but their job is to help you get better for no other reason than their job is to help you get better. And so I think with a lot of these things I've learned over time, it's okay to pay people to tell you sometimes the thing you already know. Because you see people that live long parts of their life, whether it's business, relationships, you see you see families that have kind of been torn apart and they know the answer to make it all better is just to forgive each other. That's the answer. It's the simple answer. And they'll go 20 years without doing it and then they'll finally meet a counselor that'll bring them together and like force the function. And then you see this like beautiful healing happening. Most of the issues that are plaguing like where we're headed in life are not these huge mysteries. Now, I'll, I'll caveat that. If you're growing a big company, and you're leveling up and maybe you're trying to be that Jeff Bezos that's going from step to step. Yeah, there's things you have no idea about that they're helping you level up on. And they're teaching you how to do things that you've never done before. Again, that goes back to being a good mentor though. You're talking to the people that have walked the walk of where you're headed. But in a lot of times, executive coaches aren't necessarily teaching you how to do all these things you've never done before. They're teaching you how to handle what's in front of you that day, how to prioritize your time better, how to manage people better, how to do all these things. And so nobody had to tell me I was a bad manager. I was a bad manager. I knew it. Now, it helped him to clarify what a great manager was, what it took to do that, where I was where the gap was and what I'd be able to fill it. He he said it to me in a non-threatening way, but I didn't need him to tell me I was a bad manager. What I needed him to do was go, here's maybe where you should be thinking. Here's where you should be spending your time rather than just trying to be a good manager. That's He gave me the permission to go, I'm not a failure for being a bad manager. In fact, I can give 10x more to this company if I just focus in these areas of the company and not doubling, almost like doubling down on my weaknesses. So, yeah, I don't know if I got off track on that answer. That was still helpful. 
over the next year, what skill or leveling up are you hoping to achieve? It's a great question. I want to learn how to buy business. I don't know if that's leveling up or achieving anything, but that's something that's intrigued me going back to where we've been. That might be totally off topic. As far as like a tangible skill, patience is my constant, is what I'm constantly working on. There's an element of wanting to move fast and do things quickly. But again, I think some of the greatest wisdom over time is to kind of be patient. I think as I look back and now I'm kind of entering this prime of my career, I don't need any one thing to happen tomorrow. And it often feels that way as an entrepreneur is like, got to get this done, got to get this done. Yeah, there's some things that you need to get done today. I think the skill, and I don't know if I'll, I don't know how I'll test if I'm better at it, is just being patient with people, with projects, with problems, with everything. I think my strength is I can move quickly and my weakness is I move really quickly. And again, you just look at some of these, we could take this back to where we started with like Berkshire, one of the most patient men you've ever met. But when it's time, it's time. When it's time to move, they move faster than anybody. But they're also cool being patient for a really, really long time. And I think we're entering a market and a new time in the cycle, the economic cycle. Just people are going to be distressed. There's going to people's, you know, we're just human emotions are going to be up a little bit. Now is the time to be patient, not the time to be not patient. I love that. Chris, thank you so much for coming on the podcast for a longer and more deeper dive into your professional and personal life. So thank you for sharing your time. I've really enjoyed getting to know you and visiting you in Dallas and meeting you at Capital Camp and thoroughly enjoyed spending time with you. Alex, I think the world of you, I think you know that. You've gotten so much better at these podcasts. Your questions are great. And uh, I'm always rooting for you, man. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Think Like an Owner. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Hood & Strong, Oberly Risk Strategies, and Ravix Group for supporting the podcast. For full episode transcripts on our weekly newsletter, please visit our website at tlaopodcast.com. Thank you.